I'm with my friend and fellow conversationalist, Dan Sullivan, and we're going to be talking about philosophy, psychology, and how does that help us look at entrepreneurship? Dan, as you know, my degree was, I had a double major in philosophy and psychology because I wanted to make sure that I had two majors that would assure that I could not get a high paying job. Immediately. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I must say that I'm really happy that I had those two majors because it exposed me to ways of thinking that I would not have been exposed to otherwise. And I think there's a tremendous value in that. You and I were speaking a little bit earlier about chat GPT and how the people in, in Strategic Coach are approaching you not about how to use it, but how should they think about it, which led us to a talk about philosophy and psychology. So explain to me why you think you're getting that kind of question and why you think the thinking about it is important. Well, I think, first of all, that a lot of my coach clients in the Strategic Coach Program have been in the program for a long time. So it's not unusual to have somebody 20 years, 25 years, and I've seen them every quarter. And what coach is about is thinking tools. We say that your best value to your clients and customers is that they think differently when you're with them, okay? So they have an experience that they're able to see things more clearly when you're with them. And one of the things that triggers it is that I have two concepts. And one of them is the three-year question. So I'll say to someone, if we're having this discussion, and really I've practiced this right from the beginning, if we're having this conversation and it's three years into the future and we're having a discussion, well, just stop there. If they accept that we're three years into the future and we're having a conversation, they just bought the relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's the first thing that anyone buys is actually a relationship. Right. Before they buy, then they figure out, is there something that's really useful about the relationship? My sense is that people pretty well make up their mind about other people within the first 10 seconds. And some people have said to me when I asked the question, they said, well, I'm not going to give you that type of information. I didn't even know you. That's wrong. They know everything. They don't want to have a relationship with me. Okay. Mm -hmm. And therefore, anything I'm going to say is just a waste of my time and a waste of their time. So I'll say to them, well, thank you for clarifying that right from the beginning, because I don't even know what I can do for you. You know, I don't even know if there's some use I have for you. And in order for me to know that, I've got to know how you're seeing your future. And if you don't want to tell me how you see your future, then, you know, thanks for the time. And that's it. And I'll get up and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, to come out. I said, nope, nope, it's over. It's over. You don't trust me. And you just said you don't trust me. And so I'm on my way. And I've had people phone me afterwards and said, can we come back and start that over? I said, nope, one chance. You only get one chance. I've run into people five years later and they said, would you give me a second chance? I said, nope, nope. You're not a trusting person. I have to be dealing with a trusting person. Anyway. So the question is, if we're having this discussion three years in the future, and you're looking back over that three-year period, back to today, what has to happen 
in your life, both personally and professionally, for you to feel happy with your progress. Okay. Well, there's no way that they have thought through that before. Okay. Right. And they'll say, wow, wow. And I have trial lawyers, you know, and they said, that is just the great question because it uses the future perfect tense. Okay. And it's not used in English very much where you move the conversation into the future. And then they're in the future and they're looking backwards. So they're actually talking about the past. They've turned the next three years of future into the past. And then the question is not what's going to make you happy, but what's going to make you happy with your progress. Okay. And there's only one person in the world who can possibly know the answer to that. And it's them. And until they answer the question, they didn't know they knew the answer. Okay. And then they'll say, wow, wow, wow. I had one guy said, well, and this is like in the first five minutes, he said, well, I'll tell you, he said, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And he said, I've been sober now for a year. And he says, I'm just in a deep hole. And in the next three years, I just want to get back to level ground. And he says, in order for that to happen, I have to do this, I have to do this, and I have to do this. And if they answer the question at all, they'll talk for an hour. Mm -hmm. And it pours out, and what they realize, this may be my only opportunity with another human being to have a conversation where somebody's actually interested in me. Because everybody's wondering, is this going to be about you or is this going to be about me? And most sales are about the salesperson. Almost all sales is about the salesperson. It's not about the customer. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're trying to convince you that you should be really interested in what they're selling. I don't even know if there's anything I can do for this person, but I know that if they answer the question, I've already done a lot for them. Mm -hmm. And they feel it. They feel it. And then I have a thing called DOS that most people spend psychologically and emotionally, they spend their day dealing with three factors. One of them is dangers. There's the possibility of losing something, okay, losing something. And that's fear. They have the fear of loss. And what can you fear losing? Almost anything, relationship, money, opportunity, reputation. There's almost anything. And they want to see that eliminated in three years. They want to see the dangers, a lot of them before that, but certainly by three years. And then I say, what opportunities do you have that need to be captured? And opportunities is the opposite of danger. Opportunity is the possibility of gain. What can you gain? Well, everything you could lose. And then the third thing is strengths. They have strengths already that got them where they were, and they have this sense that they haven't maximized their strengths. And so they'd like to be able to focus on where they're really strong and make their strengths stronger. So the whole approach to clients and customers in the marketplace for all of our entrepreneurs is that you don't pay attention at all to what your competitors are doing. You're identifying your best clients and customers. What kind of future are they trying to create that you can be useful to? Not necessarily you, but people you know could help them with their future. Okay. And once you have them, you then have a monopoly because there's nobody else that they can have the experience of exploring and creating their future. 
you're the only person they've ever met. So you've immediately eliminated the competition. And as far as your experience with them, you just created a marketplace monopoly. And how did you arrive at that question to ask? I don't know. I'll tell you, it started early. It started early when I was a kid because I grew up without children until I was six years old. I had four older siblings who were already off to school. We lived on a farm and they were the farm workers, my siblings. I was the house guy with my mother, okay? And everybody I met until age six, till first grade, I never played with another kid my age until first grade. So I had adults and the adults were interesting because they had the experience. I was talking to people who had been through the First World War, through the Great Depression, through the Second World War, and they had enormous amounts of experience and they had seen tremendous technology, you know, jumps in that time. So I had a question that I nailed when I was about eight years old. And I said, when you were my age, what was going on in the world? Boom. That was worth two glasses of milk and four cookies. <laughs> and afterwards, they would talk to my mother and she said, you know, I say things to Dan that I've never said. I haven't even thought about it. He asked me about things that I've never really thought about, you know, and I feel better. I feel better. And it took me 20 years till I was 30 to figure out how you turn that into a business model, <laughs> which is strategic coach, because it started when I was 30 and everything else. But I'm just intensely interested in other people's experience. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you talk about talking to adults, one of the classic adult questions is, of course, what do you want to be when you grow up? But if you flip that question, like you did, essentially, consciously or not, yeah. and say, you're grown up, looking back, how did you see your life? <laughs> well, how did you get to where you came from? Right. I mean, where, right. And I always start entrepreneurs, tell me how you got started. First question I ask any entrepreneur, how'd you get started in this? And then I just keep pumping them with questions. If you had to say between where you are now and where you were then, are there five big jumps that you took? Well, there weren't five big jumps, but their brain has to, they take all their experience and they break it into five jumps. And so they said, well, there was this and there was this and there was this. And immediately they're seeing their past totally differently. And I have a rule that somebody can't have a more successful future until they have a more confident past. Mm -hmm. Explain that to me. Well, entrepreneurs are unique in not giving themselves credit for what they've done. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, the whole thing about success is getting away from where they were. But they also get away from any learning about where they were. I'm a passionate about history. I had a double major where I went, and it was a degree in the history of philosophy and the other one, the history of science. So I read the great books, you know, it was one of the great books colleges. The original Great Books College was at the University of Chicago in the 1920s and 30s. They were now reading textbooks about Plato. They weren't reading Plato. They were reading textbooks about everybody who is a thinker, but it was somebody else's thinking about somebody else's thinking. And what they said, why don't we just go back to the original source? So it was all going back to the Greeks, not so much the Romans, because they didn't have the unique thinkers that the Greeks did. But one of the things you come to in relationship to their world, 
there were people 2,500 years ago who were just as smart as anybody today. Right. And smartness isn't a function of what age you're living in. Smartness is what are you making of the world that you're living in? Right. So there's not a philosopher today who can match Plato. You know, there's not a philosopher who can match Aristotle. They're interesting, but they build on everything that got built from Plato and Aristotle. People are standing on a lot of shoulders to get where they are. In every field. In every field. Yeah. In every field. Yes. Yeah. In every field, yeah. So that's my story. My whole thing is that people are woefully ignorant and woefully lacking in creating lessons for the future that they've already done in the past. So I just get them back and do a history lesson. I make them into historians of their own entrepreneurial career. Well, you do something else, and that is... I charge them a lot. <laughs> And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's <laughs> the key. And I always charge more. <laughs> one little tip, and then I'll over to you because we've got a short one this time. But during the 0809 downturn, some of my salespeople came back to me and I said, Would we ever discount? Because we've never discounted. Okay. And I said, We won't discount, but it might be a good time to double. So we doubled our fee and it just filled up like that. Because there was a lot of people who wait because they want to know who's not going to be in the workshop with them. Mm -hmm. And if you double, you eliminate a whole group of people. And so the moment that you double, and I think it's elastic. I don't think you ever reach the point where you can't double again. I remember the first time I interviewed you at Genius Network, and I asked you about, so how do you price yourself? <laughs> yeah, Sullivan's pricing formula. Yes, yeah, which I think at that point you hadn't been asked that before. And you were then talking about, you know, how you did it. It was a really fun thing because you were processing it as we were going, which was kind of interesting to hear. But, you know, what I was going to say is that I think what you force people to do, if they're going to get value from coach or even if you allow them to join coach, is they have to start constructing a narrative. What is their story? And, you know, to me, it's interesting because it's their story. Hmm. So, you know, you're looking from the future. It's original. It has to be original. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you have to learn how to talk about who you are and what you do in a unique way. And you had mentioned the term you know, having the courage before. Well, let me ask you, what is the distinction between confidence and courage? Confidence feels good. Mm -hmm. Courage doesn't feel good. And why is that? Well, confidence, you're confident because you have a capability. Courage doesn't feel good because you want the capability, but you don't have it. But you commit yourself to developing the capability. The commitment and courage, I think, actually create the capability. I don't think the capability exists. I mean, if you go back to personality at the beginning, you had never done a Broadway musical. Right. You've done a lot of things, you create a lot of things, and you produce a lot of things, and you know how to stage things, and you know a lot of the skill sets that go around that, and you're an avid theater 
goer going back 30 or 40 years. So you've seen good and bad, and you know the difference between good and bad, but you'd never actually done it. And you just committed yourself that you were going to do this. And this was actually a personal commitment to an actual person, you know, who the play is about, Lloyd Price. And that carried extra emphasis because you were saying, I'm going to write a musical about your life and everything else. But you didn't have the capability to create a a musical, Broadway musical, because you had never done it. You had no experience of creating it. So there was a long period, and I still think you're at it. (laughs) Every time you get to the point where, I mean, first you had the reading, and that required, and then you had the workshops, and that was way down the line from the what I saw the first time, you know, on the west side there, the little presentation theater that we saw it in. And then the opening in Philadelphia, that was a big jump. Every time you take a jump, it requires commitment and courage because you don't have the capability of that jump yet. Right. Okay. And I think that's the big thing. And pricing is the first way that you take a risk in the marketplace. I think it's the first step of entrepreneurism. It's the first step is what are you going to ask someone to pay for your time and talent? Yeah, and you introduced a word into our discussion, risk. Because I think the confidence one has, if it's well-founded confidence, as opposed to arrogance, Yeah, you've got confidence comes from the ability to repeat what you have done. You know, you've done it, and you can do it again, and you can do it again. Courage means that there's a risk factor involved and you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you do it anyhow. Yeah. You could fail. That's right. That's right. And in failing, as soon as you get the start and involve other people, you're not only failing yourself, you're failing other people. That's right. So there's a responsibility that immediately comes with the commitment. You know, we're going to create this, but I need you to be part of it. But they're giving up their time and talent to bet on your bet. That's right. That's right. So I think it's interesting because also the difference between confidence and arrogance is arrogance, there's a certain lack of awareness. A lack of awareness, I think, in terms of how you approach something, in other words, thinking you might be infallible, which we know is not the case for anybody, then it takes courage to challenge your own confidence, if you will. Well, in a sense, you're betting the ranch. That's right. You're betting what's made you successful before. I mean, we had the mayor of Toronto just had to resign because during COVID, he had an affair with a 31-year-old staff member. And I said, that was a big risk. (laughs) I don't know if he's been a good mayor or a bad mayor because Toronto sort of grows itself. It's the banks and real estate developers that are in control of, which I think is probably true of New York City, too, for the most part, you know. And I said, it's unfortunate because this is how he's going to be remembered. Right. Right. Your finale is is how your life is seen. Because, first of all, people don't think about it. They just say, oh, he's the guy that, you know, had to resign because he had an affair with a 31. He's 68, 31. I mean, jeez, you know. Somebody in his office, I mean, at least, you know, (laughs) go to the motel on Jarvis Street, you know, (laughs) 
And he blew his entire career. You know, he blew his entire career. He would have been remembered probably for being instrumental in the growth of the city for lots of things. You know, Toronto is a city that just always grows, you know. You know, it's interesting, though, because you bring up another fascinating point, which is how do you recognize risk and how do you assess a risk that is worth taking? Is it really worth having sex with someone 36 years younger than you in the office when it can destroy, I don't know if he was married, but. Yeah, uh, yeah, he had four kids. He's been married for 45 years, you know, solid. They were invited to all the events, you know, mayor and -and so-and-so and everything else. And I said, well, boy, you know, I mean. Is that really a risk worth taking? There's a difference between risk and just outright stupidity. Right, right. And then she owns you when you have that. She owns it, you know. Like the person with less power just got power over the more powerful person. Yeah, yeah. and when you yeah. say it's stupid, it's as if that person never looked at the possible consequences of their actions. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he's been in politics his whole life. I mean, he's been totally a political player. And I said, elected office is a very entrepreneurial activity. People only remember the last election. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we started off this segment talking about philosophy, psychology, then, and it's kind of fascinating because the foibles of we humans repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. How long is the line of men that have made really stupid decisions because they're thinking with their genitals instead of their brains? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare wrote about this. You know, the Greek Sophocles and those people wrote about this. Caesar, you know. Caesar just had too many affairs with too many important men's wives and daughters. (laughs) Yeah, everybody said it was over power. They were all after power, but he was after their wives and daughters. You know, people take it personally after a while. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> after a while. <laughs> yeah. And how do they remember Caesar? Mostly for the fact that he was assassinated. Right. The final act, you know, the final act. But the big thing about it is that it's one to have a time perspective in terms of humanity, but it's important to have a perspective in terms of your own life. Okay. Because my feeling is that any day you can remember something from your life that you could learn something new from that thing that may have happened 45 years ago that would be useful for the future. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the questions that I asked the guests in my class is, you know, if we have known you as a kid, would we be surprised by what you're doing or would it make perfect sense? Yeah, great, 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 great question. Great. You know, and... The thing about it is that I think that we often forget what it is that excites us, makes us feel good, get lit about. Yeah. You and I have talked in previous episodes about the things we did. I mean, you know, you learning how to open up those adults when you are eight years old is not unlike what you do now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something you always enjoy doing, and it's something that you still do because. You know, another thing that you and I share is the curiosity about how people operate and what their story is. Yeah. Yeah. When I got to first grade, they didn't know anything. 
Mm-hmm. Like I never really had much to do with the social life of my classmates because they didn't have any experiences. They didn't have any experiences that you could learn something from, you know, and the teachers didn't know as much about World War I and the Great Depression and World War II as I did. My mother told me, she said, you have to remember when you go to school, the teachers are only teaching you what they've been taught. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not teaching you what they created. And she said, but you're going to learn how to read. And if you can read, you can go anywhere you want with your brain. Right. You know, right. That was very useful. I mean, what she told me, I was the vicarious child for her. I've lived the life that I think my mother wanted to live. Really? Yeah. She was born in 1910. She was a girl. She was also a fifth child. Both my mom and dad are fifth children in their family. Three fifth children. I mean, we all understood the game when I was born. I mean, I was given a lot of freedom, but there were very strict rules about what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I didn't screw it up. I stayed with the rules and everything else. And my mother said, you know, when you're 18, you're going to leave. You're not going to stay here. You're not going to grow up around here. You're not going to get married here. You're going to go out into the world. She never told any of my siblings that. She only told me. So I think she saw in me, there's a question for another podcast, but I saw my parents as sort of immigrants from their families. Like their families, they both grew up in the Cleveland area and they moved 50 miles out. And in the 1930s and 40s, 50 miles was a big distance. Right. That was like one blown carburetor and two flat tires. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's also interesting that after your advertising, that you actually ended up returning to, and it may not have been conscious, but you ended up returning to what it is you loved doing when you were a kid, Mm -hmm. which is figuring out people's stories. Yeah. You know, which is just, I think, kind of, fascinating because as a result you know that life you were living then and the marriage that you had then once you realized who you were and not trying to fit into this job and that it allowed you to create a unique methodology and a really good business well the other thing is that people's stories are completely original They didn't learn how to live their life. I mean, the life they lived is not something they learned from somebody else, especially the entrepreneurs. You know, they're outliers. I'm a real outlier for my family, and I'm an outlier from everybody I grew up with. The fact that I'm in a real growth period at age 78 is an outlier. It's an outlier position, you know. But the thing is that I'm so imbued that everybody lives an original life, but very few know it. That's right. And until the right questions are asked, they're not triggered. And that's the other thing is that life is really about great questions, not about great answers. That's right. It's also, I think, about those great questions. If they are truly great questions, it's a way into that person because that'll uncork them. Yeah, yeah. And that gets into a whole other area in terms of how do you quickly establish trust so you can get people to talk about themselves in a a real way? No, I think that's mysterious. It is. Yeah, I think that's totally mysterious. But 
more and more of I've studied psychology, and that is that the human brain meets somebody new, and they just take that new person, and they run it through their entire experience of human beings that they've known in their life. And it's plus or minus. It's plus or minus. And I think it's the first skill that babies learn, that these shapes, they know certain shapes and everything like that. But I think facial recognition and voice recognition is the first basis for knowledge. And what they're discovering more and more, it starts when they're inside the mother because they can hear the sounds, they can pick up on things. Talk about a rude experience. Birth has got to be one of the great rude experiences in life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, whoa! Was, that's right. I was swimming, you know, it was warm, it was comfortable, and whoa, you know, and then they slap me, and then they cut something, <laughs> you know, I got to believe that's, whoa! But then our brain, I mean, Stephen Palter, he doesn't really deal with newborns that much. He just makes sure that they happen. But he said that when you put up, you can hear the baby's brain growing. He says it's like, ta, 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 ta. and it's just putting things together. Humans are unusual in how much we allow the young to stay young for the length of period. And that's really progress. There are people in your class, you know, at Parsons who are in their 20s and they're technically they're still children. Mm-hmm. That's right. When is your birthday, by the way? 19th of May. That's right. I knew it was in May. I couldn't remember. Yeah. But I think that's the other thing that we share besides the 60 or 70 years of things happening in the world that we experience, both of us. We know about things that happened, you know, in the 50s, you know, and we've gone through all the different social revolutions and technological revolutions and political revolutions and One of the things, I remember when the Soviet Union collapsed, I was noticing that there wasn't really much written about it. And I said, this is one of the greatest land empires in the history of the world, and it just collapsed. And everybody said, oh, you could see it coming. Nobody saw it coming. The Russians saw it coming. I mean, the Russians could feel it, and they were trying to prevent the world from knowing how bad things were To a certain extent, not much, but I can sympathize a little with Putin. He had it really good. Yeah. Putin really had it good. He was a colonel in the KGB. And I have to tell you, in the Soviet Union, being in the KGB, it just didn't get any better than that. And they were the ones who were educated. They're the ones who got to travel outside. They had godlike powers. And it was all taken away. I mean, he was in Berlin. He was in the KGB in Berlin when the wall fell and everything like that. And he said it was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. And I said, you know, I said, looking at it from your perspective, I can really see how that was. I said, I'm used to getting inside of how other people are looking at it. And I can sit there and I was saying, he's really pissed off. He's really angry. His whole world was taken away from him, and then the history of that world is constantly being degraded. It's like there's nothing good that happened in the world that he grew up in. But I think that world of his had real meaning to him, and the meaning was taken away. People will murder for having their meaning taken away from them. Oh, yeah. Yeah which is a whole other fascinating topic. That's another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
this has been anything and everything. And true to our name, yep. we have covered anything and everything with my friend Dan Sullivan. Yep. And also, we want to just ask you that are listening, leave a review. Yep. That would be really great if you did. And of course, tell your friends. And I think the it. review is really what did you learn from it? Yeah. That would be great. I don't mean five star or anything like that, but right. just something that you thought about as a result of our conversation. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. That's gold for both of us. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.